0: Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Andy, for sharing our uh, scripture reading this morning. Our my fellow pastors just love when they get scripture readings like that. I did warn him early this week that he was going to get to read those forty eight names that uh, begin the Gospel of Matthew, and did a wonderful job. So, thank you, brother, for doing that for us today. Uh, we are going to be diving into uh, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We just got out of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, and we're making a 400-year leap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament here uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're kind of wondering what we're where we're headed in the coming months, uh, we're going to plan on just continuing through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're going to spend this spring in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm looking forward to that, and then we're just going to kind of work our way through Matthew. It may take us a couple of years to make it through Matthew's Gospel, but we'll take some breaks. Along the way, and do some other things, but uh, I think it's very timely for us uh, to get into the Gospel of Matthew and be reminded uh, of the good news of our Savior. Not just here at Christmas time, um, but during this this time in our country right now, we need to be reminded of some basic things. And Matthew does a wonderful job uh, of bringing us back to some of those foundational elements of our faith. And so, we're going to look today at this list of what is uh, 48 names, some of which may be familiar to you, many of which are not. Some of these names are only found in the scriptures in this list. We know nothing about some of these individuals. Some of them we know much about. In many ways, it's kind of a a hall of fame, or as uh, Grant said earlier, a hall of shame of the Old Testament, um, but there's also a lot of folks in this number that we know nothing but their name occurs here in this genealogy this family tree of our Savior Jesus Christ and so we're going to be looking at these today and as we jump in here we many have said that it, Matthew if he was going to be a good writer he might could have used a, a better editor because who starts a book out this way. I mean, you go to the Gospel of John, and he grabs you from the very beginning, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he just draws you straight in to what he's going to be sharing about. And the, and the Gospel of Luke, again, jumps right into the birth narrative, and, and we're, we're grabbed immediately that in those days that Caesar Augustus was, was causing a census to take place that was shaking up the whole Roman world. And, and again, there, there's these opening lines in the other Gospels, and yet Matthew begins with something as seemingly bland and boring as a genealogy. I mean, not too many of us get real excited about these portions of Scripture. In fact, if you're one who has a, has a habit of reading through the Bible, when you get to some of these kinds of lists, like over in, in the 1st uh, and 2nd Chronicles, you see a lot of these kinds of lists. That's the tempting point to just go, yeah, I'm going to fast forward And skip over these lists of names, uh, lest we get bogged down. But we want to ask this morning, why does Matthew, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, this one who was called out of the booth of the tax collector and into service to our Savior as one of his twelve chosen disciples, why does Matthew choose to begin his gospel, his story of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does he begin this way? There's a variety of reasons that we'll talk about this morning. But I think one of the things that Matthew is seeking to do here is he is building a bridge between the Old Testament and the New as we ended last week in the book of Malachi, chapter four, the, the Malachi ends kind of in the not the best of places, with a reminder of the curse of sin, and as we jump into the New Testament again, fast-forwarding four hundred years of, of history. As we jump into the New Testament, we find this this genealogy being given that serves as a bridge between those Old Testament days and the New Testament. And we're going to see a character known as John the Baptist here in a couple of weeks that that is going to be even more of a bridge between the Old and and the New. But another thing that Matthew is doing here that's really important for us to understand is Matthew's not just building a bridge between the Old Testament and the New but he is also establishing the credentials, if you will, of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is, in many ways, Jesus' resume in terms of his calling to be the King above all kings. He is showing here in these 48 names that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, but some particular promises that God had made during the time of Israel's kings, and we're going to look at those this morning. The emphasis here in this first chapter and really throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the King of Kings. And Matthew wants us to learn about Jesus's kingdom. And so let's look this morning at this message that I've entitled, A New Beginning, Matthew 1, 1-17. Here's the key truth today. The Gospel of Matthew begins by introducing us to King Jesus and establishing his right to the promised eternal throne. What right does Jesus of Nazareth have to claim to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Matthew wants to establish from the very beginning his spiritual resume that we might see his worthiness to be our king. And so let's jump right in. Matthew has this separated out into three sets of 14 names. We'll talk about why the number 14 here in just a minute, but... He begins by recognizing that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And as the son of Abraham, this gives him the right to be called the king of the Jews. We're going to see that phrase used several times as we work through Matthew's gospel, as we move into the story of of the wise men next week. When they come to King Herod, and their question is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's Matthew 2.2, 2, the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then he goes on to establish Jesus' kingship as he moves through his gospel. But it's not till the end of the gospel of Matthew that we begin to see the true value and nature of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because what we find about Jesus as a king is that he is a king unlike any other king. No king operates like King Jesus. In fact, his rule and reign could be considered quite irregular, quite strange, even scandalous. Some of the things that he does as king, he does things that no other king Would do. And by the time we come to the end of Matthew's gospel, we begin to see the strangeness, even the the scandalous nature of the kingdom and of this King Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 11, as Jesus is headed toward his cross, he was standing before the governor at his trial, and the governor asked him the question Are you the King of the Jews? And whereas Jesus had remained silent during most of his trial, and all the accusations that were hurled upon him at his trial, where Jesus had remained silent, here he speaks and his answer is, you have said so. Which is almost kind of an odd answer, isn't it? And yet he was affirming that he was the king of the Jews. Then in verse 29, as they were beating him and mocking him, kneeling before him, the soldiers mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They were saying it in mockery and yet it was the greatest truth they could have proclaimed. And then in verse 37, as he was hanging there on the cross, What was the sign that listed his charges above his head? They put this charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But what they used as a charge for his condemnation was actually the very reason for his exaltation. As he was lifted up upon the cross, giving his life for the sins of the world, standing in our place as our substitute, he did what no other king would or even could do. He took all of our sin upon himself. Rather than, as most kings would seek to do, exalting themselves, Jesus instead, as we sang a moment ago, he condescended, he stooped low, he made himself nothing. As our king taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself, even becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. You see, King Jesus shows us the reality that in God's kingdom, the cross always comes before the crown. We're going to see that again and again in this gospel. There's a reminder that the the pathway to Jesus, assuming the crown of that eternal throne, had to go through the cross. There's always suffering before glory in the kingdom of God. That's good for us to be reminded of, by the way. In a day when suffering abounds in all kinds of forms, and even as I look around this morning, I'm reminded of, of those in our own congregation who are enduring difficult things right now. Some of you may be, may be wondering where the mayor of Merediths are. Tim and Rhonda Meredith uh, found out this week that uh, Tim's situation with his back had, had gotten worse and worse, and finally on Friday they decided they needed to head to the hospital. And I talked with them last night, and both of them are in hospital beds right next to each other. You know, Rhonda's not been well for quite some time. I'm sharing this with you to encourage you to pray for them. But also, I want you to hear from them. Their their greatest concern last night was not so much what was happening with them physically. Their greatest concern was we really wanted to be at church tomorrow. And I love that about Tim and Rhonda as they both struggle week in and week out to come into this place with their physical ailments and all that's going on with them. Their desire is to worship this king who suffered in their place. And I want to commend us to pray for them. We'll keep you updated as to it looks like Tim's going to be facing some pretty significant back surgery in the the coming days. He's been looking toward that for a while now. But again, the sufferings that we endure as followers of Jesus Christ, take on a peculiar and special meaning in light of the fact that our Savior has suffered in much the same way. Now, our sufferings don't have the same value as His had, but they do oftentimes have the same flavor. And so we can, as Paul encourages us in Romans 5, we can rejoice in our sufferings. And so we see His rule and reign irregular in their nature. And he drives into these lists of 48 names. And I want to show you as we work through this today, we're not going to obviously have time to look at each and every name. There's lots of things we could draw out of the Old Testament here. But, but I want to point out to you some notable names along the way, some peculiarities in the family line of Jesus that we might be quick to overlook. The first one I want to show you is a, uh, are two notable names that occur in this first section under the fact that he is the son of Abraham. We find it listed the names of three women and two of them in particular we find these two Rahab and Ruth who were both Gentile women. There's two peculiarities here. First of all, the fact that a woman would be listed in a genealogy in that time was very odd. That was unusual. Unless she was a very prominent woman that everyone knew of, oftentimes the women's names would not be included. But we find here Matthew including the names of five different women, three of them in this first section. Now, the tendency would be to include women that everyone would think highly of or who were well-known or had done great things for their community. But Matthew chooses to include three women that we would probably be more apt to overlook or to omit. The first one he includes is Tamar. If you don't know the story of Tamar, go back to Genesis 38. I'm not going to recount that story for you this morning, but let me just tell you, it would make one good soap opera episode. What happens there in Genesis 38, it is a a mess. What happens there in the family of Judah related to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And yet, Matthew is sure to include her here, even though she also was a Gentile woman, a Canaanite. She's included Here in this list. Then we come to Rahab, this one who is commended in Hebrews chapter 11 for being a woman of faith who welcomed the Hebrew spies as they were spying out the promised land. She hid them so that they would not be discovered by the, the, the uh, rulers and governors of Jericho. And she hid them, and for therefore she was she, her life was preserved as they destroyed the city of Jericho. And she actually ends up marrying into the family of the Jews, and she here is included in Jesus' family tree. And, of course, we know the story of Ruth, and we oftentimes, we oftentimes lift up Ruth as a great woman of faith once again, and, and how she stood by her mother-in-law in spite of all the, the challenges in her family. And yet, we often forget that again and again, when Ruth is talked about in the Scriptures, what does it say of her? Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the woman from Moab. And what was being remind? What was the reminder there? As it was saying, Ruth the Moabite. It's the this woman from Moab. Was it was a reminder of her heritage? And there was not much good to say about the Moabites. They were a people of great sexual immorality, who were known for their sinfulness and their idolatry. And, and many times that there are words spoken against the Moabites in condemnation throughout the scriptures. And yet again, she's included here. So we're seeing Matthew intentionally, including not just women in his list of Jesus' genealogy, but Gentile women. This is not a pure line as you think about this in terms of the nations. Gentiles are grafted in even toward the beginning of Jesus' family tree. What is Matthew trying to show us? I think it's the same truth that we find in Galatians chapter 3. In verse 28, the Apostle Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse has been used to teach all kinds of heretical things in our day to try to eliminate the distinctions between men and women. That is not what this verse is saying. But what it is saying is that we all stand before the Lord God when we are in Christ. We are all on equal footing before God. There is no value distinction. There are many role distinctions that we find given to us in Scripture. But there are no value distinctions between men and women, Jews and Greeks, even slave or free, as it, as it pertains to us being in Christ. And this is good news. This is a good thing for us to celebrate as we are drawing near to Christmas this year, that he came to bring peace to all mankind. That all of us would stand as equals in the kingdom of God. And so he gives these names. But also as he is speaking about Jesus as the son of Abraham, he he is showing us here that Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now the word fulfilled is going to be used a dozen or more times in this book. It's one of the main ideas in Matthew that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. But but as he's linking Jesus to Abraham here, he's wanting us to think back to Genesis chapter 12 where God called this pagan named Abraham out of his paganism and said, I want to bring you into a land. I want to take you out of your nomadic lifestyle and give you a land. And not only do I want to give you a land, a place to call your own, but I want to give you a people. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and then stand upon the seashore. And at this point when he's receiving the promises, Abraham is already in his 70s and has no kids. And it would be a couple more decades before those promises would be fulfilled. But the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God promised to Abraham, I want to give you a place, this promised land. I want to give you a people, descendants so numerous, the the people called Israel or, or the Jewish people, the Hebrews. And I want to give you a purpose. I want to give a purpose to your life that's going to be particularly for you, but through you to all the nations. In Genesis twelve three, God said, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, notice this, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations, I'm choosing you and and your descendants, the people of Israel, as my special possession. We saw that even as we worked through Malachi in the last several weeks. But here he's saying, in you, through you, all the families of the earth will receive my blessing. And ultimately, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was the Savior first for the Jews, but then also For the Gentiles, we sit here today as recipients of these promises if we are in Christ. And so we see Jesus, son of Abraham, king of the Jews. But then he goes on in verse 6, he wants to connect Jesus not just to Abraham, but to one of Abraham's descendants, this one known as King David. And he's showing us here that as the son of David, Jesus is not just king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of kings. Because David's rule and reign was the beginning of this monarchy that lasted for over 400 years. And we see the list of kings that come after him beginning there in verse 6. And as you look at that list of kings, what you begin to notice is these weren't the best of kings. In fact, they're about 50-50. If you go back and, and look at each of those guys, you know, the refrain as you work through 1st and 2nd Kings, as it's talking about the reign of a king, it would say either one of two things. Either A, he did what was good in the sight of the Lord, or B, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they would be given kind of a grade based upon it was either a pass-fail kind of situation. They either did what was good in the sight of the Lord or they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as you look at these that Matthew has selected, you might think he would have been tempted to choose all the guys who did good in the sight of the Lord. Or maybe just to be honest and sprinkle in a a few of the losers, right? Right. But Matthew actually goes 50-50 here. As you walk through this list of 14 names, seven of them, the grade on their kingdom was he did what was good in the sight of the Lord. And seven of them, it was said, he did what was evil or what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The honesty of the scriptures always impresses me. But as he's talking about Jesus as the son of David, as the king of kings, what he is wanting us to be reminded of is a particular promise that was given to David as a part of what's known as the Davidic covenant. And this promise was that his kingdom would know no end. The promise that God made to David in his lifetime is that your kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom we see this promise echoed in isaiah chapter 9 the passage we read at christmas oftentimes we'll probably read it again before this month is over the prophecy in isaiah 9 says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a messianic prophecy. Speaking about the coming Messiah. The one that Matthew is saying, this is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of this promise. As it relates again here to this eternal kingdom. But one thing you notice as you move to the end of this list of kings. That occurs in verses 6 through 11. As you move to the end of this list, and again, they're 50-50, some good, some bad. We come to verse 11, and it says, And Josiah, who was one of the best kings that Judah ever had, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Right there in that verse, you have Josiah, who was one of the best kings that Israel ever had, and you have Jeconiah, who was one... Of the worst kings that Israel ever had. So bad, in fact, that Jeconiah left the kingdom cursed. His rule and reign was so wicked that it ultimately resulted in the Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 BC and utterly decimated Jerusalem and carried the remaining survivors off into captivity in Babylon where they would remain for 70 years before Cyrus of Persia allowed them to return and to rebuild. But while they were able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they were not able to To restore the kingdom. They were not able to restore the kingdom. Because the prophet Jeremiah had spoken. This curse against Jeconiah's kingdom. He said thus says the Lord. Write this man down as childless. He's speaking of King Jeconiah. A man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now here we have a problem. The problem is that God has guaranteed an eternal kingdom to David and his descendants... But as the descendancy gets down to King Jeconiah, God says, I'm cutting it off. Now, is God going against his own word? Is God here breaking his own promise? I hope you know your pastor well enough to know the answer to that question is no. God is not breaking his word here. But he did stay true to the word given to Jeconiah. Again, when they returned to rebuild Jerusalem, they had many of the things that they had had previously, but one thing was missing. The kingdom was not restored. And yet, Matthew is taking great pains here to show us that this Jesus known as the Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant that promised that eternal kingdom. You see it in Second Samuel 7. Where God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And yet when Matthew writes this gospel, Israel has no kingdom. So where's the promise? Has God come up short? I would love to leave you just kind of thinking on that today, but I'm going to give you the answer to the question. The answer to the question comes as we look at the other genealogy that's given in the Gospel of Luke. We had time, we'd move over to Luke chapter 3. We see Luke also, Luke was, I think, uh, smart enough not to begin his book with a list of names. He waits till chapter 3 to give his list of 77 names that go from Jesus all the way back to Adam. He goes beyond Abraham all the way back to Adam to establish Jesus, uh, even from the very foundation of the world, the line that God was putting together. But the interesting thing happens when you get in Luke's list, when you get up to King David. And at King David, rather than Luke following the line that came from David's son Solomon, Luke instead follows the line that comes from David's son Nathan. And from that point forward, the genealogy goes a little different direction. And some people have looked at that and said, well, that seems contradictory. How can Jesus have two family lines? I think it's a pretty easy answer. All of us have two family lines. I have one from my mother and one from my father. I think that's the solution to the genealog- what's called the genealogical problem in the Gospels. I think that Matthew here is showing us Jesus' line through what's really his stepfather, Joseph. They were not really blood relations, as we'll see clearly next week as we move into the story of Jesus' birth. But what we're seeing in the gospel of Luke, I believe, is Jesus' line through his mother, Mary. You're saying, Pastor, why are you spending so much time telling us all this? Because I want you to see how carefully purposeful God is in keeping his word. I want you to see how carefully purposeful God is in maintaining his promises to the nth degree. He is utterly faithful. So when God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, yours will be an eternal kingdom that is a promise that could not be revoked. And when God said to Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22, your kingdom is going to be the end of the line, that was a promise that could not be revoked. And so then how can Jesus be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the promise of the eternal kingdom? Because that kingdom, that kingdom promise was maintained not through the line that came through Jeconiah, but through the line that came through David's son, Nathan. A different line of kingship that was maintained in order that the messianic promise might remain. I know that's a lot of history, but what that history ought to say to us is this. Our God is faithful to his word. He is trustworthy. You can put your confidence in what he has spoken. He will do everything he has promised to do. This ought to strengthen our faith. I hope it does. Finally this morning, I'm going to fly through this last point, but... We see the son of Abraham, king of the Jews, son of David, the king of kings. And then Matthew, just like his uh, friend John would emphasize, he wants to show us the son of God who is the king of the exiles. And this last section almost seems like a letdown because, again, we've kind of had the hall of fame of Old Testament or the hall of shame of the Old Testament up to this point. And then we come to the last section of 14 names beginning there in verse 12. And most of these we know nothing about. The reason we know nothing about them is because they lived in the page that is probably immediately to your left in your Bible, which is probably blank as it is in mine. There's a blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament that represents 400 years of history that is not recorded in our scriptures. And most of these folks that we're looking at in this last section lived during that time. And we know very little about them. But we do know they lived in that time either of the exile in Babylon or the time subsequent to it, which was not the best time for the people of God. It was a difficult season god remained silent they went from one oppressor to the next first it was babylon then it was persia then later on it became rome it was dark days for the people of god and yet god was still doing something for and through his people he wants us to see here what the subjects of the kingdom look like and you're going to see this again and again in matthew's gospel as we work through it together that the subjects of His kingdom would be those who are the sinners and the scorned. The nobodies, the nameless, those that nobody takes any recognition of. The ones that have no real notoriety. As you look through this particular uh, list of 14 names, what you realize is, we don't know any of these, save for maybe one or two. And yet I believe that many of them could be what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, where it says, In that hall of faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and acknowledged them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In that season of God's silence, those 400 years between the Old and New Testament, God's faithful people continued to listen and to wait, and to trust in the promises that He had made. The same thing is what we must do during the dark times of our lives when God seems to be silent. We continue to wait, and to trust, and to know that God is faithful to His Word. There is one notable name I want you to see in this list. His name is Zerubbabel. He was the man that God raised up to lead those first returnees uh, to Judah. They had been in exile in Babylon 70 years, and God raised up Zerubbabel to lead that first band who would return and begin to rebuild. And, and Zerubbabel com- becomes this, this Christ-like figure. Much like Moses had been in leading the people out of Egypt and into the promised land, now Zerubbabel comes along and he leads the people out of exile and back to the promised land. And Zerubbabel becomes this this Christ-like figure that's the one who will lead God's people out of their depravity, out of their sin, out of their exile. And by the way, we deserve to be in spiritual exile as it relates to God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We deserve to be separated from God in a place of exile from Him. And yet the perfect Son of God came to rescue us from that place and to bring us into His kingdom. And so Zerubbabel becomes a sign of what was yet to come. And finally this morning we see here just a little reminder that Christ is also the fulfillment of the new covenant. With something new happening. In fact, in this first chapter of Matthew, twice he uses a, a Greek word that's related to the English word. Where We use the word Genesis. It's also the first book of the Bible, which means a beginning. A Genesis is a beginning, a, a start. And twice in this chapter, we, we see Matthew using that word Genesis to remind us that there's something new happening here. It's not the same old, same old. Something new is happening as Christ was coming into the world. What God's people had been waiting for in expectancy for thousands of years, all the way back to Genesis three fifteen, that first promise of the coming Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent and who would establish God's kingdom on earth. All the way back to that promise that God's people had been waiting and had been watching and hoping and trusting. And ultimately that resulted in this new covenant where no longer would the law be written on tablets of stone but upon the hearts of God's people. And the Holy Spirit would indwell God's people. And we would have this new thing called the church not like Old Testament Israel where you became God's people through your lineage but now we become God's people through faith. In Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the new covenant. We'll see that more as we move through this gospel together. Here's the bottom line today. In His Word, God has made many, many promises. But the one thing that we can stake our lives upon is this He will fulfill. Every single one. Just like those people in the intertestamental period, that time when God was silent, were waiting for the coming Messiah. Now we are waiting for His return. And it is easy to grow weary in the waiting as we look at the sin-broken world around us, as we watch things seemingly go from bad to worse, as we watch a disease that's ravaged our planet mutating from one form to the next, and we wonder, will it ever end? As we look at the fact that even our churches are not nearly as full as they were two years ago. As we look at the political climate, The economic instability. All the things that we're seeing in our world today. It's easy to grow weary in the waiting. But the word of God says to us. Take heart. His promises remain. And the fulfillment of every one of them is found in one source. His name is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Our God is trustworthy. His word is faithful. He has never failed, nor can he fail because of his very nature. And so I would ask you today, are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in this Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David? The long-awaited Messiah who came as a king different from any other. He did come ultimately to rule upon an eternal throne, but the pathway to that throne came through the cross. And by the way, I want to say to us, if we would desire one day to stand before his throne. We must first. Stand before his cross. And bow the knee. And worship and obedience to him. Turning from our sins. And trusting in our king. To do for us. What we cannot begin to do for ourselves. Are you trusting in Jesus today? As we close at our service we're going to share a song together i'm going to ask during this song if some of our pastors would stand here at the front with me this is a great time of year to be reminded of the promises of god renewing a, a hopefulness as we look forward to what god is going to do in the future but i would ask you today where's your hope is your hope in Christ? If you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, see the Gospel of Matthew saying, He is the one who's worthy of your faith and trust. All the promises of God are fulfilled in this one. Don't trust in anyone or anything but Him. We trust in Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You. We thank you for this list of names this morning, Lord. It it can at first sight be a little drab and boring to us until we're reminded that this, this list reminds us of the painstaking process by which you brought your Son into the world. This list is a reminder of your glorious purpose. This list is a reminder of our heinous sin. This list is a reminder that You are the God who desires to rescue both Jew and Gentile, male and female, upper class and homeless. You are the God of all people who has extended an eternal invitation that we might come and gather at Your throne. Father, would you remind us today that before we can come before your throne, we must first come before his cross. See our Savior who died in our place. That we might be redeemed, rescued from our sinful rebellion against you. We might recognize that there is only life to be found in his death that there is only consolation to be found in that place where He was condemned. That He became sin for us so that through faith in Him we might become the righteousness of God and be counted among Your people. Not because we are worthy, but because our Savior is. So Father, as we sing of the cross this morning, may we walk in faith before You in Jesus' name.